You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. They don't take no time to play, time to play, time to play. All he does is work all day. You can play and laugh and fiddle. Don't think you can make me sore. I'll be safe and you'll be sorry when the wolf comes to your door. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we're taking a little detour. We've discussed the first 11 films of the canon, starting with 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and up to 1949's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And we encourage you to go back and listen to any of those episodes if you've missed them. Uh, But as we've hit the end of a decade, we thought it would be fun to pause and discuss some of the other things Mr. Disney and his animators were up to during this time period. So this is our first foray into the uh, deuterocanonical animation of the Walt Disney (laughs) Studio, and we'll be talking over seven short films today, Uh, 1933's Three Little Pigs, uh, 35's The Band Concert, Alpine Climbers from 1936, 1937 The Lonesome Ghosts, 1938 we have Ferdinand and the Bull, and then 1942 How to Play Baseball, and 1943's Chicken Little. I'm Josh Altman-Schofer, and with me as always to provide his insights is uh, Professor Michael Farmer. Dr. Professor. What are you? Dr. Michael Farmer. It, you know, it's <laughs> funny. You and I both went to a, a Christian college where uh, doctor is the higher position. So, like, professor is what you call anyone who doesn't have a doctorate at, at secular schools, especially the, like, state schools. Doctor is the lower position, and professor is something you earn. So, I'm a doctor, okay. not a professor. Okay, okay. Either, well, either way you look at it, because uh, I'm, I'm technically an assistant professor. I don't know who I assist, but. <laughs> oh, so how does a crown do it? Did they do it like Tacoa did, or? Yeah, almost exactly. Like and and okay. I, I would say the stages. I, I don't know how how interesting this is to our listeners, but whatever. I, the, the stages are, are pretty pretty standard. So you you come in as an assistant professor, and after seven years you can apply to become an associate professor. Then after seven years you can apply to become a full professor. What difference does it make? Uh, at some schools, once you're a full professor, you basically can't get fired. Um, well, that's that's nice. Is that yeah. a, is that a crown? No, is that the case crown? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, we were thinking that we'll just do this in order. I'm sure we'll run into a few themes that will uh, cross, uh, you know, cross movies here. But um, yeah. So uh, you want to just jump in with the three little pigs, Michael? Absolutely. Uh, give us a, Give us a plot summary. <laughs> Anybody who needs a plot summary. <laughs> so the Three Little Pigs belongs to a series called Silly Symphonies, and I believe this is the only Silly Symphonies we're looking at. Um, so so uh, most of the Disney shorts feature uh, a particular character. So there's Mickey Mouse shorts or Donald Duck shorts or Chip and Dale shorts eventually. Uh, the Silly Symphonies are were designed to not feature any particular bankable characters, and instead they tell these largely standalone stories. And Three Little Pigs is almost certainly the most famous uh, of the of the Silly Symphonies, and it was a, a huge smash success in 1933 when it was released. And uh, in fact, they made several sequels, uh, which are. I think everybody agrees not as good, although also not without their charms. They're 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 pretty funny. Um, so, 
If you haven't Disney. seen the short, which you probably have, this is this is the one Disney short that people who don't watch shorts typically typically know. But if you haven't seen it, it hews very close to the storyline of the of the fable, which is you have the three little pigs, Pfeiffer, Fiddler, and Practical Pig. Um, uh, they they build houses, but Pfeiffer and Fiddler want to play their musical instruments and slack off, so they build their house out of houses out of hay and sticks. Uh, while Practical Pig builds his out of brick, the Big Bad Wolf comes and blows down the first two houses, but can't blow down Practical Pig's house because it's made of bricks. And that is the Three Little Pigs. And and Disney adds a few gags to it, but for the most part, it follows that plot. Yeah, quite a, quite a few gags I think are are, are thrown in there. Um, this is the big breakthrough for for Disney, I think. Um, they, he was he was already Mickey Mouse was already popular before this, but this was kind of the the huge as you said like a smash hit that just everybody knew. And really, what came out of this one was the the Disney style. Um, so mm-hmm. an animator, uh, his name is uh, I want to say Frank Moore, but now I'm Fred Moore. Uh, oh, Fred Moore. Yeah, thank you. Uh, kind of came up with this this style of of animation. Um, he does he does the introductions to the pigs. Um, and the, his big innovation over animation previous to this was that as the characters kind of squash and squish is, is kind of the, the animation style that we're talking about, they still maintain their same volume. Whereas if you look at animation prior to this, uh, they call it the rubber hose era. Um, it was basically bodies with, you know, uh, rubbery type limbs attached to them. And, and those limbs would, would, could stretch and do things without maintaining their volume. And so it, it the the fact that they cre- that they maintain volume kind of gives um, a little more weight to the characters and also makes them a little more realistic. Obviously not. <laughs> I mean, these are singing pigs, but um, like there's a there's a more of a feel of like flesh to them or something um, than you than you had in some of the earlier animation. That's right. And and one another another innovation. And I I the sources I looked at disagreed on whether. The story department was created right before this film or because of this film, but this film is intricately connected to Disney's story department as opposed to their animation department, which didn't exist before the early 1930s. So the animators were coming up with the stories and animating them. Now you have separate people coming up with the stories, and so it's people devoted to just the storytelling and the animators. I'm sure add some things, but uh, largely it's the vision of the story department. So this is this is um, this is the first major uh, Disney film to really uh, to, to really make use of that. And because of that, you have the three pigs who all look basically the same. They wear different clothes, but they all have very distinct personalities. And some sources that I read said that this is the first ever animated short where you have characters who look the same but have distinct personalities. Obviously, Mickey and Minnie had personalities before this, but uh, this is this is a breakthrough in terms of writing, in addition to animation. Right, and even the Mickey and Minnie before that, like they their their personality is um, it's it's a little different, right? Like they're they're characters, and and they they behave in kind of the same way in different situations, but like that's kind of their whole. And I will talk more about Mickey because we're gonna we're gonna talk about three different Mickey shorts here, so we can save it for them. But They don't know, have interior lives in the early Mickey right. Mouse shorts, whereas yeah, yeah, the Three Little exactly. Pigs, I mean, it's still rudimentary, right? This is still a children's cartoon. But they, they do appear to have interior lives. 
yeah and so yeah and the song is still super catchy i think do you know <laughs> the, it's a hit think, single uh, yes i do yeah i think i think that was actually a big part of the success of the short was uh the fact that it was a the the song was so catchy and then um yeah just coming at the time that it did uh in the midst of the the great depression um people people saw this as as a as an uplifting sort of parable i guess yeah that's right and then in the 40s the song got used as an anti-hitler song too yeah which uh yeah we'll get some more anti-hitler <laughs> here at the end uh our, our last one that we're going to talk about is chicken little so um yeah i think uh the the things i were reading on this short was was really talking about how um on purpose or not is up for debate, but the the Disney animators and, and Disney himself was was largely involved in this short. Um, really seemed to capture exactly what America needed in, in this moment, and that's why it was why it was such a hit. Yeah, it it really holds up. I think it's it's a very funny, charming short. Uh, you know, obviously it's not frightening. I assume your kids weren't afraid of it, but the big bad wolf is drawn very well to be kind of cartoonishly threatening. Yeah, my my kids weren't weren't worried about this one at all, and I don't know how much of that is because they already knew the story. But um, yeah, the wolf doesn't strike fear. <laughs> I don't know if he would have at, at the time. He has very sharp teeth. He does have very sharp teeth, and seemingly too many teeth. <laughs> but it, you know, my favorite detail about him is that at various points in the short, really for no reason, he's uncontrollably drooling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is well well animated. Yeah, he's just it's it's his saliva because he's just so hungry for for the pigs. Which it's hard um, to blame them. They are they are very fat, juicy pigs. Yeah, which is part of the style, right? Like that's that's part of Fred Moore's style is uh, the the there's the appeal of the pigs is almost just the it's the same appeal of Mickey in some ways, like that those curved. Um, figures just are appealing to the to the eye, and so it just it works that way. Um, Fred, I guess, was popular around the studio for drawing um, curvy women as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> he had a lot of a lot of practice. Um, but yeah, there there's just something appealing about that, I guess. Um, yeah, did you see in the in the house on in the uh, yes fixed house? <laughs> he's got framed. He's got a framed picture of of mother. Um, which is a pig with with many little baby pigs, and then the the frame picture of father is a, uh, a string of sausages. <laughs> That's so disturbing, right? Like what a what a macabre joke for a for a. I say children's cartoon, but of course adults uh, enjoyed it too. But like that is that is a dark joke that you wouldn't expect from Disney. Yeah. Well, and this is a, the, the time still where it, it wasn't yet. Uh, we hadn't yet reached that animation ghetto that we talked about before, where if it's animated, it must be for kids. Like this was still at a time when, like, you know, it's it's really adults who are seeing this over and over and over again um, that are, you know, bringing in bringing in the success that is really going to propel Disney to be able to to go forward with this plan to make the full length because um, this is a few years before. I think Snow White is in production at this point because they worked on Snow White for a long time, but 
Uh, we're four years before Snow White actually hits the theaters at this point. And the, the silly symphonies, I, su- I should say, were often used to push animation forward. And maybe we should have done a whole episode just on famous silly symphonies cartoons. But a, a number one, a, a number of them are just kind of technical tour de forces. I'm not sure this is one of those, but that's what the silly symphonies were used for from a studio standpoint. Right. Well, I think the technical tour de force on this one is really just that that change in in style that um really like it it's it's um it's held true all the way i think they're they're animators today um or at least as recent as um you know early pixar i don't know if 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 we've gotten to a new stage now but i remember in the early pixar days uh watching an interview with john lasseter where he was still talking about the squash and squish style of animation which is what fred moore was innovating here so um, I think that's part of why it holds up so well is because it looks like what we expect animation to look like. And, um, yeah, it's, it's held, it's held for however many years later we're, we're looking at here. So I should say this too. I just noticed this in my notes. Um, we're recording on May 26th. Uh, this short was released on May 27th, 1933. So tomorrow or last week or whenever you, whenever you're listening to this, May 27th. 2018 is the uh, what is that 85th anniversary of the Three Little Pigs? Wow! Wow! Happy birthday, That's, guys! Happy birthday! <laughs> That's really crazy. Um, yeah, like you said, it, it does. I feel like it held up really well. So 85 years on, I don't. I, yeah, usually, I mean, you can tell that it's old, but I don't. I don't know that I would have guessed 85 years. So one thing that dates it. Um, and, and this is true in the version on YouTube, which I think you watched. I know it's the one you linked to on our on your Twitter account. Yeah, um, unfortunately, none of these are available uh, digitally, as far as I can tell, except for How to Play Baseball is for sale uh, digitally. But all the rest, I don't know what Disney is doing. I know every show I complain about Disney's um, <laughs> vault. <laughs> like, vault. Um, I don't know if these are in the vault or if it's just like they they have been released on on DVD. But I sorry, have all I the DVDs, so so yeah. I was I was uh, I was going to say smart enough, but it's not really smart enough. I I I had a lot of disposable income when I was in graduate school and not, <laughs> and not a lot of friends. So I uh, I bought most of the Walt Disney Treasures DVDs that all of these are collected on. So I'm, I'm glad I was I was happy to be able to watch it on on DVD. But um, you want my theory of what's going to happen? You know they're starting their own streaming service next year. I think I think you're going to see the the shorts up on that. Yeah, that if makes sense. If you're ready to pay for another streaming service, right? Um, but yeah, anyway, think, the the, yeah, the version ahead. that's on YouTube um, has so so. When the uh, when the when the wolf tries to get into Practical Pig's house for the first time, he dresses up as a fuller brush salesman. In the version on YouTube, it is the original version, and he is dressed up in very exaggerated Jewish peddler garb. Um, so I, that that's something that dates it. That kind of that kind of ethnic Jewish joke, I don't think would fly even twenty years. After this, uh, this short was originally uh, produced, and, and in fact, on the Disney Treasures version, they have changed him to be just a generic Fuller Brush salesman, uh, which I think works. It's a pretty funny, it's a pretty funny scene. Uh, he he tries to sell these Fuller Brushes, and Practical Pig takes one and beats him with it. <laughs> yeah, but the the uh, the the Jewish peddler thing really takes you out of the short in 2018, I think. 
Yeah. And they actually, they got some kickback from that, from the Jewish community at the time. Um, and, uh, so that's, I mean, that's part of why they reanimated it in the, in the later releases. I was, yeah, I was actually surprised that the YouTube one was the one that, that was still so blatantly, um, Jewish, but maybe I shouldn't be <laughs> based on some of the videos that are on YouTube. Um, You're reading yeah. that biography. Walt, Walt Disney has been called an anti-Semite for decades. Do you, do you walk away from that biography feeling that he was an anti-Semite? You know, it's so interesting. Um, you know, it's hard to judge, but, um, there's definitely, uh, the, the author of this book, um, calls it casual instant, casual insensitivity, insensitivity, sorry. Which you would have shared with, with most people of that time. Right, exactly. And so that's where it gets difficult, right? Like, I mean, we can look into the past and, and see some of this stuff, like we've become more sensitive to it, um, which I think is good, <laughs> you know, that we've become more sensitive to these things. But then it does create a little bit of difficulty in judging it. I mean, we had this discussion a little bit in Dumbo as well, right? Like looking at the crows, like there, there's no way the crow scene gets animated today. Like that's not, you know, not going to happen. Um, but you know, is it racist or is that, you know, just not sensitive? So. Right. And I will point out, I mean, some of Disney's most famous collaborators, most notably the Sherman brothers who wrote um, dozens and dozens of songs that everybody knows and loves. They're Jewish. He has a rabbi on hand at the opening of Disneyland in 1955. So, I mean, yeah, I think, I think his relationship with, the Jewish community is complicated, probably more complicated than just calling him an anti-Semite or a Nazi, as he sometimes gets called, uh, would would uh, would suggest. Also, yeah, I think Nazi uh, is definitely too strong. For, well, given the anti-Nazi uh, films he made in the 40s. Um, but, but the other thing is he was so anti-organized labor, uh, and, and organized labor was very associated with uh, Jewish intellectuals, and so I, I think I think maybe some of his antipathy toward unions bled over into a kind of casual anti-Semitism. But I don't know; I haven't read a biography, so um. yeah. And I think some of that would—I mean, it's 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 hard to know, right? Because again, I, I, neither of us knew the guy clearly, um, and even reading the biography, you're just you know you're getting it through this lens. But um, his his real anti-union streak came from I think a deep personal hurt with the strike that we talked about uh back i think at dumbo's when we talked about the strike um but yeah like he he had this vision of a utopian sort of animation company uh based on his prior experiences you know before he had his own company like working in animation studios and and not enjoying it and feeling like he was cheated and all these sorts of things and so um, he was trying to create this kind of utopian work environment and then to have his employees turn on him. I think it really changed his relationship to the animation studio from then on. And also, you know, it colored his perception of, of these things of unions and the, and these sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, I don't know that they're necessarily related. Um, but yeah. Knows? Anyway, kind of a black eye on this short and I, you know, usually I have a problem with them. Uh, changing the or, or cutting the uh, the 
old offensive ones. We talked about that when we talked about Pecos Bill, which has a full minute or so cut out of it because he's smoking a cigarette, God forbid. Um, but, you know, I having both versions available seems fine to me, and I don't. I really don't think that the uh, the edited version it loses anything. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that you know I. Yeah, usually I'm the one in in favor of you know it's it, there, for at least his, for historical purposes it should be available, right? Like yeah, charge whatever for you know scholars to look at it or whatever, but for at least for historical purposes these things should be available. But it does get tr- tricky when it's when it's insensitive. Um, so I don't know. I don't I don't have a strong opinion on it. I guess. Uh, but as for the short itself, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it's very cute, as you said, and charming. And, uh, it's got some good, it's got some good gags. The, uh, my favorite is when they see the wolf coming and the, the pig runs into a straw house and slams the door and then opens the door back up to pull in the welcome mat. <laughs> I thought that was funny too. Yeah. Um, I, I love it when the wolf runs into the tree and dozens and dozens of apples fall onto his head and then there's a beet and a rotten apple falls onto his head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's several, yeah, several good, good jokes in this one. So I, w- I wanted to point out a little bit about the voice acting. Um, Fiddler and Pfeiffer are both played by women, Dorothy Compton and Mary Motor. Um, the other two parts, Practical Pig and Big Bad Wolf, are played by voice actors who um, show up again and again in these shorts. Uh, Pinto Colvig plays Practical Pig. He is best known as the voice of Goofy. Uh, and then Billy Bletcher plays the Big Bad Wolf, and we'll see him again in Lonesome Ghosts. But pretty good voice acting. Yeah, I would say so. I I, I really like when the wolf puts on his uh, baby sheep <laughs> voice. Yeah, yeah that's funny. <laughs> so there's, yeah, so there's a point in the short where the wolf uh, is trying to get into the the stick house, and before he blows it down, he he dresses up as a as a little baby sheep in a basket, and he does a he puts on a, a baby sheep voice, and it's it's yeah, that's that was my favorite voice acting moment. Um, Anything else to say about this one before we move on? Oh, I think it's yeah, it's worth watching. It's it's uh, the song is the song is cute. Um, I don't I, I don't know ha- having not lived through the Great Depression or being you know terribly familiar with that time. Uh, it's hard it's hard for me to see the the parable in it, I guess. But uh, well, I think it may come from that expression, the wolf at the door. Oh, was that the uh, okay? So this this short creates the expression, or the expression I- was there. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I I think yeah, you know, the wolf at the door means you're running out of money and you're going to starve to death. So I I think certainly the the parallel there, whether it created it or whether it was just used for that purpose. For what it's worth, Disney said it was never intended to be anything other than entertainment. Yeah, which is kind of the Disney. Yeah, <laughs> That's kind of what he says about everything. He doesn't right? he doesn't want to be seen as making social commentary for the most part. Although with some of these, it's going to be very difficult. Ferdinand and uh, Chicken Little, in particular, I think it's going to be very difficult to claim they're just there for entertainment value. Yeah, but that is kind of his stance. He's not always a accurate narrator of his own history. So that's where those some of those other questions also come up. Uh, you know, going back to the anti-Semitism and stuff like, you know, it's it's hard to know because you know, of course, he's not going to say that he is. So yeah. 
I always like to talk about the role of the the films in, at the theme parks, and there there is a kind of checkered history with the, the Three Little Pigs at the theme parks. The Big Bad Wolf still wanders the parks uh, in search of children to give his autograph to, and it's an amazing, ridiculous costume with his mouth with his tongue hanging out of his mouth. But more infamously, there used to be the Three Little Pigs, and a in I think it was in the 80s, a woman sued Disney and claimed that one of the Three Little Pigs came up and squeezed her breast and yelled, Mommy, Mommy? <laughs> uh, the suit was thrown out, however, when it was revealed that the Three Little Pigs costumes don't have movable arms. So that, wow. didn't, that didn't happen, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but you still don't see the Three Little Pigs very often anymore, I assume, because of the notoriety of that case. Thank you for that image, Michael. Yeah, you're you're welcome. <laughs> hey, it was in my head, so now it needs to be in your head, too. Wow. Um, oh, one more note on this one is that... Uh, um, oh, now... Sorry, now I'm going to blank on the name. Uh, do you know the the famous uh, Warner Brothers um, composer, um, Tra- Stalling? Is that his name? Uh, I don't know. Okay, sorry, now I'm blanking on his name. But anyway, he he played the piano bit in this on the, when the practical pig plays the piano, he plays the the piano. Oh, so interesting. He's, and he's the one who does all the like the merry melodies and and Looney Tunes, like the the he's the composer for all of those. So, but he played the piano on this, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's weird to think of these shorts as having composers, right? But all of them do. I mean, yeah. because there's music in them, but you don't you don't think of somebody composing for an eight minute cartoon. Yeah, although this is a good uh, maybe that's a good segue into the band concert, which is very obviously um, a musical piece. So it's more um, I think the music came first, and then the the animation is set to it. So more more in the style of like um, uh, Fantasia or something like that uh, style piece and it is a um, classical composition the, the very famous william tell overture by rossini which everybody knows yeah. is the uh the lone ranger theme yes and also the turkey and turkey in the straw <laughs> yeah that's in there too <laughs> that's in there. yeah which i just think is so wonderful like i i i am amazed by the music in this in this short like how well the turkey in the straw blends into um the William Tell Orchestra. So, I got to say, uh, I didn't even realize that it was Turkey in the Straw until I was reading about the short afterwards. That's how well it blends in. I thought Donald was just playing along with the with the band, but you you should give the plots of this one before we go on. Yeah. So basically, the the plot is very simple sim- simple because because of the fact that it's it's more about the music I think um, than the plot. But uh, Mickey is is a conductor of an orchestra. There's a little orchestra in the park and he is um, conducting them through the William Tell Orchestra. Um, or did I say that right? O- um, overture. Overture. Sorry. Yeah. William Tell Overture. And then uh, Donald comes in and he's selling something, concessions or something and basically interrupting uh, the piece. And then he pulls out a flute and, and starts playing Turkey in the Straw and <laughs> distracts the band. The band all follows him instead of Mickey the, as the conductor. So that's the main, I think, um, conflict in the piece is, is uh, Donald continually pulls out more and more flutes um, to continue distracting the band and, and, and resting the, the song away from Mickey as he's trying to conduct it. And then they get to the part of the piece that is it's called The Storm. Is that right? Yeah. And 
it actually in the conducting of the piece it it, it creates a a monster storm and then they play through the storm which um i think is an interesting contrast that they they can stay focused through a storm but not through uh, a flute player (laughs) (laughs) through donald duck (laughs) yeah not through donald duck um i yeah i really really like this one yeah it's a tremendous short and this this is one of the ones that feels more like what we would associate with a warner Brothers style because it's so manic and madcap but it also feels very disney maybe just because it uses the disney characters mickey's here donald's here unnamed though here is is goofy i think at this point in his evolution he was still called dippy dog and then um two characters who we don't see very often anymore horace horse collar and clarabelle cow yeah (laughs) way to get a shout out to them yeah they're great um yeah what did you think of this one the, the strangest thing to me was to see Donald Duck be the kind of happy-go-lucky one and Mickey being very angry. You almost never see Mickey angry because uh, nowadays Mickey is so milk toast. Mm. Um, but Mickey gets really furious at Donald Duck and it seems like he's going to beat him at one point. Yeah, it's actually it's one of the greatest gags. So Mickey takes his takes Donald's flute and breaks it. And then uh, Donald, of course, pulls out another flute. Mickey comes up to him to grab it, and Donald breaks it and then hands it to him so that Mickey has nothing to take his anger out on him. It's <laughs> and, then, and then Donald just laughs at him. I, I think it's great. It must have been a difficult short to make. There's there's way more animators on this than there usually are on these shorts. Usually the shorts have, I don't know, five or six animators. This one has more than ten. And you can see why. I mean, there's a, an awful lot going on, a lot of characters, a lot of mo- motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, each uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's all the different parts of the band, of course, and then, um, I mean, even though Mickey and Donald are the main characters, and then once they get caught up into that whirlwind, I just, I think it's really amazing from a uh, technical standpoint and from just, I mean, from the animation standpoint of all the things that are going on with the, you know, as they're as they're caught in this twister and they're they're being thrown up into the air, but then also like the the sound goes along with it. So as you know, as the you know as the as the instruments come to the front of the screen through you know from being swirled through the whirlwind, like you hear them louder. You know, like it's it's really amazing. Yeah, it's very well done, and I mean we need we need to remember we didn't watch this for some reason. But uh, one of the innovations Disney made was uh, to have synchronized sound. Um, and people say it's Steamboat Willie. The first one to actually have synchronized sound is a short called Plain Crazy. Um, but the, the, the synchronized sound uh, was a Disney trademark, and so they, they continue to improve on it in this short. Yeah. And then the other thing about this short that was innovative was the uh, this is the first time that Mickey Mouse appears in the Technicolor. That's right, yep. And and one thing Leonard Moulton says, uh, uh, he he introduces the shorts on uh, the Walt Disney Treasures collection. He says that the band concert is really the beginning of the end for Mickey. I mean, he's got shorts for 20 more years, but this is the point where Mickey stops being the most interesting character in the Disney stable because Donald takes over from there. Donald um, is capable of more sociopathy than Mickey is, and so so he's a more entertaining character, and Mickey kind of becomes the straight man. And you you, you see that happening in this short. Um, Mickey is still, uh, like I said, he's angry, which you, you don't see much after that, but he, he, he is still uh, calmer than Donald in some ways, less frenetic than Donald, and, and Donald would become the most popular 
Disney character shortly after this. Yeah. Disney, or I'm sorry, not Disney, Mickey. <laughs> it's funny that I conflated the two because um, I think Disney saw himself as Mickey sometimes. But um, yeah, Mickey really, uh, he, at, at, at that change that you're talking about, I think a lot of it was actually the fan base. Um, they, and the, the book I was reading, it was saying that they would get all these letters after every short. And if Mickey was, you know, doing something that the, the people didn't like, uh, you know, so the, the people really pushed him to be more, um, as you said, milk toast. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Donald, they didn't, they didn't care, you know, like they expected it of Donald, but they didn't expect it of Mickey for whatever reason. This uh, too shows up at the theme parks in an attraction called Mickey's Philharmagic, where Mickey is uh, d- uh, conducting a magical orchestra, and Donald steals the magic wand and takes a terrifying voyage through 1990s Disney films. <laughs> it's a three uh, one of those 4D movies they call them, where right. they spray water at you from the seat in front of you. Yeah, it's pretty good. And this one, sh- this one shows up in that. Uh, that's the kind of this is the kind of inspiration for that, just in terms of Mickey okay. leading a orchestra. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's so many good, there's so many great moments in this one. So uh, one of my favorites is when the uh, so <laughs> Donald is selling ice cream and he flings ice cream at Mickey because he's uh, he's mad at Mickey and the. It goes first into the trumpet, is that right? Trumpet, I think. Or, yeah, wherever it goes. But then it, it ends up on Mickey, and Mickey kind of wiggles it because it's going down his back, you know. And and as he as he does that, it the all the band switches into the Snake Charmer song. Um, it's just really really nice. I just I, I don't I just enjoy this one so much. I think my favorite is they're all circling in one direction in the tornado and then the music stops so the tornado stops because the music has somehow created this tornado and then the music starts to wind down so they go the opposite direction very slowly down to the ground i thought that was a nice touch yeah i agree yeah really good the other one i really liked is that the 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 uh the timpani player is looking ahead in the music and he's seeing that he has this big roll coming up and so he takes his coat off and hangs it on the tree so that he can like really get into it <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah. So, yeah, this one's really fun. Yeah, agreed. So, yeah, Alpine Climbers is the next year, 1936. We're still seeing a, a little more of the aggressive Mickey, I would say, in Alpine Climbers. And also, um, the Mickey Mickey is um, subtly transforming in the way that he looks um, based on uh, that, again, that Fred Moore animation that we saw in The Three Little Pigs has really swept through. Fred Moore actually himself redesigned Mickey um, and so you're starting to see that in in both of these, where you see the the updated Mickey, the more round, squishy, squashy Mickey, rather than the previous uh, rubber hosey Mickey. This is my favorite era of Mickey animation. I think later in the 40s and especially the 50s, he becomes 
kind of bland looking. It's the Mickey Mouse that, that we think of when we think of Mickey today. But uh, here he's he's neither the the kind of generic Bosco Oswald the Lucky Rabbit look, nor is he that. He has a very distinctive look uh, that that I I really like. Yeah. So do you want to do the uh, the? I guess you would call it a plot on this one. Well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is this is a Mickey short as well as a Donald short and a Pluto short. I mean, usually when you see a trio, it's going to be Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. But um, I don't know that Goofy had really developed into a major character by this point. Uh, typically, in these shorts, they split up so you can get different sorts of gags, and that's what happens here. So they're all climbing in the Alps, I suppose, if it's called Alpine Climbers, and they they split up. Donald goes looking for Edelweiss and ends up encountering a baby ram that eats his flowers and so he fights with the baby ram until he gets until he meets the uh, grown-up ram and things get a little uh, a little nastier for donald that's very typical of donald shorts he often has a small animal who annoys him that he has to fight with mickey is for some reason trying to collect eagle eggs which ends about as well as you would expect it to the eagle comes back and mickey starts throwing the eggs at the eagle which is pretty terrible for mickey mouse uh, fortunately, the eggs are just about to hatch, and he gets attacked by a flock of baby eagles, eaglets. One of those eaglets lands down on Pluto, and through a chain of events, Pluto ends up falling off a cliff into a giant uh, snowbank where he freezes. A St. Bernard comes, and in true cartoon fashion, gives him some brandy, which uh, which brings him back to life. And then Pluto and the St. Bernard get incredibly drunk, and that's the short. So I want to go back. Uh, I we can't go past this Mickey throwing the eagle eggs at the mother eagle because it's really like terrible, it, right? It is. I feel like this is like should be Levitical law. Like you don't throw eggs at a bird. <laughs> like I mean, it's like the you don't you know you don't boil the the baby goat in its mother's milk. Like it's at that level, right? Like <laughs> yeah. Whenever um, you think about animal rights, there's something truly ghoulish <laughs> about Mickey's behavior in this short. And, it's it is awful and they give you just enough time to like think it right like it, you watch the egg fly through the air and you're thinking like what is going to happen when this egg hits this this eagle like this is awful this is terrible what am what, what am i watching and then of course it's very cartoonish and when it hits the the, the mother eagle it's a uh, the the baby eaglet <laughs> pops out um which is a wonderful relief and and also turns into a great gag because all these eaglets are are swarming Mickey. Um, he's not learning his lesson. And he just keeps chucking the eggs. But um, yeah, there's a, a a second there in the film where it is it's really awful. <laughs> what was he gonna do with the eggs anyway? Like he he's there because he's trying to steal these eggs. He's very excited about the eagle eagle eggs. Do you, people eat eagle eggs, or was he ta- planning on taking one home and raising an eagle? I, I really don't understand what was gonna happen. <laughs> Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, I have no idea. 1950s um, Mickey would never do that. Like that that's that's too that's too socially irresponsible for him. Yeah, definitely. Definitely this is still as you said in the last one, like we're on the cusp of of that Mickey changeover and and so I'm I'm glad that we still have it in this way because it makes for a much more entertaining piece. <laughs> Although it is it is horrifying for that moment. Now, I am a sucker for Clarence Nash doing Donald Duck, and I'm especially a sucker for Donald Duck singing, 
which uh, which never fails to make me laugh. He yodels here, and then what I think is the one of the high points of the voice acting in the shorts we've looked at, when the big ram comes after him, he tries to casually walk away, yodeling, uh, <laughs> which I I almost fell out of my chair. I was laughing so hard at that. Yeah, that got a huge laugh from my girls as they were watching it too. They they really enjoyed that. So the, when when Donald pulls this. He goes into a cave. He chases the small ram into a cave, and then he pulls, or, or you see all these, you know, you see the cartoon fight. So things are flying out of the cave, and then Donald is is pulling on a on a ram's uh, beard, but he's walking out of the cave with his back to the cave, and he thinks he's pulling the baby behind him, and he realizes it's the 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 father ram, I guess, and he reaches behind him and is saying, uh oh, uh oh, and he like is touching this ram and it feels the time. It's just it's really, really well done gag. It's really and the, and then yeah, as you say, he tries to sheepishly walk away and sing. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very good. For for a time in the thirties, every time Donald appeared he would sing uh what's the song? I I I I uh, can't I know your I used to sing it in Spanish class in middle school. He he would always sing that because Donald had a series of shorts where he lived in Mexico in the early in the early thirties, and and they must have thought as I did that him singing that melody is, is hysterical because they they've just had him do it in every single short. So uh, anytime Donald sings, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, it's the it's the first laugh of the short is because it's it's it opens with them climbing and and Mickey is yodeling as he goes up, but then it pans to Donald and he's yodeling and and uh, it's much funnier. So. Walt Disney's still playing Mickey at this point and does a pretty competent yodel in Mickey's voice, I think. I would say, yeah, I'd, I would say so. I don't know what a competent yodel is. But That's true. I'm not really I'm not really a yodeler. <laughs> So to me, the highlight of the of the whole short is the scene with Pluto and the Saint Bernard. I think the Saint Bernard's animation is just tremendous. Like they they animate him with such detail, and he looks so sad and so annoyed, uh, and and uh, it's it's just wonderful. Yeah, Pluto really tries to make friends, and the Saint Bernards having nothing to do with it. Um, well, Pluto yeah, gets it's, it's, Pluto gets sloshed on the the brandy that he's given to save his life, and then when he wakes up, he starts sniffing around the brandy container around the Saint Bernard's neck, which is which is tremendous. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, it's it's so good, and the, <laughs> he kind of leans against the Saint Bernard, and the Saint Bernard just kind of glares at him and then steps away. He just falls over. <laughs> And then at the end, they're both drunk and and singing slash howling. And again, the animation is just wonderful. Drunk Pluto is my favorite Pluto. I don't know how often he gets drunk in his shorts, but uh, that character, the way he's animated, because he's so long and floppy, they mm-hmm. can do they can do really tremendous things with him uh, when he's when he's loaded. Yeah, drunk Pluto and drunk Dumbo are your uh, your favorites, huh? Yeah, I guess I guess there's a I guess there's a a through line here. I like drunk animals. <laughs> yeah. The other great pit with uh, Pluto is, so one of the eagle eggs falls and ends up cracking in front of Pluto. And then the, this little eaglet pops out and uh, gets into a fight with Pluto. And that, that part was pretty funny too. Also quite typical of the Pluto shorts of which there, there are four discs worth in the, in the Walt Disney treasures. So there must be a lot of them. Uh, he he often gets into arguments with smaller animals. Yeah, 
What's interesting though is he's not hostile. So Donald and Donald and Mickey are both very cruel in this short. Pluto growls at the eaglet, but the eaglet has made the first move. Like Pluto is is very good natured in this short. He's not always, mm. um, but he is in this short. I mean, we've yeah. we've talked before, and Dumba is another good example. We've talked before about Disney characters that don't have voices, so they have to be animated very closely. And and Pluto is one of the all time greats in that as far as I'm concerned. Like the animation on Pluto is always really wonderful because it has to be. There's no voice acting to carry it. Yeah, I agree. And it yeah, just you you get everything that he's thinking through the animation. So you see I mean as he as he's sniffing around, you know exactly you you with the eagle with the eaglet egg, you see that, you know, he's curious at first and then, you know, you see him get angry. Um, with the St. Bernard, you know that he's he's wanting more brandy. Like, yeah, it's just, as you say, just very, very well done. And I, I think Pinto Colvig, who plays Goofy, also plays Pluto. I guess he just makes the dog noises. Oh, I didn't know that. He's listed in the voice acting for the, for the short. And since there's no other voices besides Mickey and Donald, I assume he must play the, the kind of grunts of Pluto. Yeah. And the St. Bernard, probably, huh? Mm-hmm, yeah, the howling at the end. Yeah. So I'm curious about St. Bernard's. Do you know about them? Like, Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they were they were bred to rescue people in the Alps like that. Yeah, it's, that's cool. Have you ever met one? They're, they're very uh, gentle, friendly dogs. I have not. But they I've are seen them. huge. Yeah, I've only seen them in the movies. I haven't seen them in the uh, in real life, so... I don't think they actually. It's a, it's a cartoon staple that they carry brandy in a little barrel around their neck, but I don't think I don't think that's that's true because um, alcohol actually lowers your body temperature. It makes you feel warmer, but it lowers your body temperature. So I think if you gave it to someone who was freezing to death, it would do more harm than good. But right. that wouldn't be very funny, would it? The uh, my my kids read the Magic Treehouse books. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but. They they love them and in the Magic Treehouse books the there's there's a two children a, br- a brother and a sister who travel um, to various places to go on missions and in one of the one of the missions they go to the Alps and they are they're rescued by Saint Bernard uh, but I believe in that one they get hot chocolate makes sense probably <laughs> probably don't want to give children brandy <laughs> yeah so but yeah they're they're at a monastery there in that book so I I didn't know if that's actually a like if that's actually a thing or what? Oh, that, that's a good. I mean, they are called Saint Bernards, right? Yeah. I don't know the answer so, to that. They do. They fine. do have ridiculous faces. They definitely do, and and the animation on this one plays up the the caricature ridiculous face very well. Like <laughs> those, whatever you call the cheek flaps, I'm sure there's a there's a name for them. Are are wonderful. Jowls, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Have you? Now you picked this one, and and this is not one of the better known shorts. I wondered why you chose this one. I can't remember why I came across it. Um, we, I mean, we were talking about what shorts we were going to do, and so I don't know if this was nominated for something or if it. Uh, yeah, I, I really don't remember, but I just remember once I watched it that I that it, I just fell in love with it. I just think it's it, it's one of the best shorts that i've seen i think <laughs> I, I agree and i think it's i think it's funnier than like the lonesome ghosts which is a much much more famous short than this one yeah so i don't know why this one doesn't get the the 
yeah, the amount of credit. And I, I really, I don't remember where I picked it up from. Um, it may have been in the book. I, I have a book uh, called Before Ever After that has, um, it's like the lost lectures from, from Disney Animation Studios where they, uh, you know, at in the 30s and 40s, they, they would give lectures to each other and to the new animators coming in about, you know, the Disney style and this sort of thing. I may have picked it up there. Um, but I'm not, I'm not really not sure. Well, it's a good one. If, if our listeners haven't seen it, they should watch it. It's got a lot of good laughs. Yeah, I agree. Well, you mentioned the Lonesome Ghost, and that's the next one on our, uh, on our list. I had not seen the Lonesome Ghost before, um, before watching this. I was shocked at how much, um, this story is basically the Ghostbusters. Um, Goofy even at one point says, uh, I ain't afraid of no ghost. <laughs> he says, I ain't, a, I ain't a scared of no ghost. Oh, does he say scared? I, I must have heard it as afraid of no ghost because I'm so uh, used to that. I, I almost, I couldn't believe it uh, when I heard it because I thought, really? <laughs> but yeah, that makes sense if it's not word for word. But Yeah, I, uh, I, I noticed that too. It was, uh, it was funny. Yeah, so um, plot of this one is basically that there's, there's some ghosts in a haunted mansion and they are bored. And they don't know what to do. And they see an ad in the newspaper for Ghostbusters. Um, they're not called Ghostbusters. I forget what they're called. Ghost Chasers, I think. Yeah, maybe. But they say, oh, let's call them um, in order to get some company. And, and basically, they're not going to catch us. Um, and, of course, the Ghostbusters are uh, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, um, at, which you mentioned in the last one, that is normally those three paired together. Um, so... Yeah, they they come to the mansion. Uh, they are harassed by the ghosts until they fall into uh, the kitchen, which still has a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of <laughs> flour and molasses in it. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and so then they end up looking like ghosts themselves as they're covered in this uh, flour and molasses, and it frightens the actual ghosts, and the, so they run away. Pretty funny twist ending. Yeah, very funny. They they don't accomplish their job at all because they don't capture these ghosts, but um, yeah, it was, it was a funny ending. They're proud of themselves anyway. I don't know how they planned on capturing the ghosts. Mickey has a shotgun, Donald a bu- butterfly net, and Goofy an axe. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure how they thought this was going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, what's their experience before this? I, I, I kind of wish I, we had the backstory a little bit. Well, my favorite gag in the whole short is the ghost call they're called uh ajax ghost chasers i think and and they they call them up and goofy answers the phone and they they ask him to chase a ghost and goofy looks surprised turns to mickey and says do we chase ghosts (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah goofy's a real a real dunce in this one um I mean, he's always kind of a dunce, but in this one, he's, I mean, when the phone rings, he's like, I can't remember what he says, but a phone <laughs> or something like that. I think it's sitting right in front of him. Yeah, you wonder you wonder what his inner world is like. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this one was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I wish I could have found a higher quality version than I did. Um, Although to be fair, the YouTube version is not much worse than the version on the Ichabod Mr. Toad DVD. Oh, 
Uh, it, it's it's I, I don't know if if the short hasn't been restored yet or what, but the the ghost in particular, the voices sound terrible. It's it's very difficult to understand what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sound on this one, on the on the one I watched, wasn't great. But, um, yeah. The so and for me, the there's the classic gag. I mean, it's it's almost a trope. <laughs> I guess Goofy's in front of a mirror and the yeah, ghost the is behind the mirror and the, 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 the ghost is imitating everything that Goofy's doing. I don't know who originated that. If that was a Harpo Marx. A, well, I, I know the Marx brothers did it, but I didn't know if it even predated them. If it, was oh, like a vaude- yeah. it may be vaudeville sort of thing, but it is a trope. Uh, there's a, there's a, tr- there's a page on TV tropes for it. Yeah. I feel like they did a pretty good job with it on this one. Um, Reliably funny, I guess. Goofy's so stupid, he doesn't even know what he looks like. Like, like the ghost looks nothing like him. He doesn't have ears, <laughs> for example. <laughs> He's not wearing True. a Sherlock Holmes hat, as Goofy does throughout this short. <laughs> True. But yeah, and then Goofy gets... Uh, so after that, after Goofy finally realizes that it's a ghost there, he, he tries to dive through the mirror, ends up getting himself all uh, tangled up in the wardrobe, so that he doesn't know which, you know, which part of himself is himself and which part is the ghost. And then he, he tries to stab the ghost and ends up stabbing himself. And, um, yeah, it's, it's all good goofy stuff. Like it's all, it's all funny. Stabs himself in the butt. I'll point out as, as we've discussed before, Walt Disney loved butt humor. That's right. Yeah. I don't know how much Disney was involved in this one. I, I didn't get a real good read on it. Um, like it's not really mentioned in in any of the books that I have, so I mean I'm sure he was involved, but I don't I don't know how involved at this point. I'll say this 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 short uh, did have some technical innovations. It, it's an early use of the multiplane camera, which you see on the uh, the opening shot. The they have a really wonderful cloud background that's multiple planes. Mm. And then also they had to develop a special transparent ink in order to animate the ghosts. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't I didn't even think about that about how you would do that, but yeah, that's uh, that's cool. They're very convincingly done, I think, in terms of you know the cartoons. You wouldn't like like you said you you don't think about it being difficult, but apparently it was. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about I mean all of these, right? Is that everything you see had somebody had to draw it. <laughs> Which is really just amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, you get caught up in the story of it, or the music, or or whatever, or the the jokes, and and you don't always, you know, think about man. Somebody had to draw every single every single thing I'm looking at. Yeah, how you know, you... it's it's how many frames per second, and each one of them is a separate, uh, not an entirely separate drawing, but separate cells. Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing. Um, yeah, I thought this one. I mean, like I said, the quality of the one that I watched was pretty low, but um, I liked the look of it, of the, you know, the mansion and the the windows are banging like a typical haunted mansion and stuff. But I, I don't, I don't know. There was there's something about the rhythm of it and stuff. Like, I mean, you, you could tell. Like, this is I, I can understand why this one got a lot of um, notoriety. Like, it's 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 all everything in it is kind of tropey, but it's all very high quality. I would say. Yeah, yeah, but I I thought Alpine Climbers was funnier than this. Yeah, I agree with you. 
yeah, it's it, it was funny, but it was not uh, yeah not as funny. So. Um. Next up, we have Ferdinand the Bull, uh, which is really not all that funny at all. It's based on a, on a recent children's book. Ferdinand is a bull in Spain. He is gentle. He's a pacifist. He doesn't want to play with the other bulls because when bulls play, they butt each other. So what he does instead is sit under a cork tree, a tree that has actual wine corks hanging from it, and uh, sniffs flowers. One day, uh, some people come to find a bull for the bullfight. Just before this, Ferdinand has sat sat on a uh, bee, and so he he is in such pain that he runs wildly through the countryside. They take him to be in the bullfight, and he does not fight, and instead uh, eats the matador's flowers and licks his face. Or actually, I think he licks his chest, because the guy has a chest tattoo of a flower. And that is Ferdinand the Bull. I, I remember there being more to this than that, but apparently I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say you recommended this one, and I, I was I was wondering why. Um, not that I thought it was bad, but I just I, I, uh, I was wondering why why it had stuck with you, or why it was your, you know, something that you that you knew you immediately wanted to get to. Well, it's historically important. I believe both the book and the short were banned in Nazi Germany because of their pacifism. And and if you think about it, this this short is from 1938. Uh, not a time when. I think most people thought of pacifism as all that viable an option. So I, I I'm interested in it more for its historical value than for its uh, than for its actual quality, which I, I think is negligible. There's some there's some good stuff in it, but uh, largely I think it's probably more important than it is good. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, more aesthetically pleasing than any of the other ones that we watched. Like, I think it's really the, the backgrounds and like, uh, even the, the character of the bulls, like are really, they're, they're nice looking in a, in a way that, I don't know, that Donald isn't, <laughs> you know, especially, especially this era of Donald, you know? Um, yeah, they're very, they're very pleasing cartoony sort of figures. And it did win a Academy Award for Best Short Subject. So, I mean, it, it was very well received. But it's um, interesting, right? Because they they talk about it just being entertainment, but there's no way Ferdinand the Bull is just entertainment. Like, like there's clearly a political statement happening here. Yeah, and I picked up on that pacifism. I, di- I guess I didn't um, think about it in necessarily the context of the time, which uh, makes a lot more sense. Um, but definitely I, I noticed that I, w- I was thinking of, um, you know, when we, we discussed Pecos Bill and Johnny Appleseed and we were talking about the different, um, different ways that they portrayed masculinity, that was kind of what I was picking up on this was this, you know, Ferdinand is a very different kind of masculine than they're expecting him to be. Yeah. Even though he is the biggest, strongest bull, he doesn't, he doesn't participate in normal bull activities. I was just looking yeah. this up. Um, this short was released right in the middle of the Spanish Civil War. 
and the the book was two, or the book was released right before the Spanish Civil War. So again, you have a uh, a short about pacifism that takes place in Spain during the middle of the Spanish Civil War. They must have at least known that it would be taken as a as a political statement. Yeah, definitely. I would I would say they must have. Um, I'm going to read a quote from this book. It's 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 a little bit of a long long quote, so bear with me. But it says, uh, "The image of the stall of the stolid." Uh, conformist was at variance with the content of the films, the real content. Though they were unmistakably conservative in their aesthetics, even ju- juvenile as critics claimed, when one bothered to examine them closely and did not just assume that as products of Uncle Walt Disney, they were necessarily old-fashioned and empty, the movies were surprisingly modern in outlook and not quite as innocuous as even Walt had declared them to be. The rock-ribbed Republican, who practically created the popular vision of 19th century America, had, after all, also suspected authority and often questioned it, hated money in its acquisition, was wary of materialism, detested affectation, and came to believe fervently in internationalism. And all of these values had found their way into his movies and quite possibly into the mindset of the generation who had been weaned on them. Moreover, ever the self-dramatist who drew on his own struggles, Walt had always identified closely with the outcasts and the marginalized rather than with the powerful, and this tendency found its way into his films too. The Ugly Duckling, Ferdinand the Bull, Morris the Midget Moose, Lambert the Sheepish Lion. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And uh, yeah, again, as, the, as that says, we think of Walt Disney as being a very conservative person, and, and you know, in some ways he is, but you're right. His conservatism takes a backseat to his populism, in some ways, and Ferdinand the Bull is a populist, kind of. <laughs> He's an individualist, anyway. Yeah. Um. Worth noting, the Matador is a caricature of Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, you can kind of tell. And the Matador's reaction is, is I think, the, the maybe the most interesting part, to me at least, I don't know, um, just he gets so angry and upset that the bull will not fight him and he doesn't get to show off his prowess as a fighter because the bull will not fight him you know like it it undermines his whole identity and i I don't know i found that really interesting there's a parable about fame there too right because ferdinand is famous before he even steps into the bull ring there are posters all around about ferdinando um, and he doesn't care about it at all. The last shot of the of the short is him riding in a cart past one of those posters and consentedly, I think, sniffing flowers. He's certainly not paying attention to the poster of him at all. Whereas the matador, it says explicitly, uh, the matador was so mad he cried because he couldn't show off with his cape and sword. Yeah, yeah, it's that that the the ability to or the inability to show off. Um, is what really irritates him, and in the context of war, um, and being a pacifist, I just I think that's really interesting. Like, um, you know, the the argument against pacifism is if you're a pacifist that that people will just run over you, right? But in this case, being a pacifist actually doesn't allow them to to show off their their strength. Uh, the, the Christian Humanist Podcast, I think it was last year, did an episode on pacifism and nonviolence, and, and that's the kind of impression I walked away with, too, that pacifism actually, in its way, requires much more strength 
than violence does because you are kind of opening yourself up. I mean, the Matador could have just killed Ferdinand. But he, Ferdinand ends up victorious, if you even want to call it that, just by, by not doing it. Yeah. So. I think the bull almost always dies in bullfighting. I don't know. I've never seen a bullfight. I, I, I think even if the bull gets one in on the matador, the bull is eventually going to die. Uh, so, so in some ways, the only way for Ferdinand to win here was by opting out of that entire thing. All right, next up we've got 1942's How to Play Baseball, which is a Goofy short. Um, Goofy stars in several how-to videos around this, or videos, <laughs> how-to shorts around this time. And um, uh, this is, I think this is the first one where it's a team sport. So we see many different Goofies uh, playing together. Uh, prior to this, it had been individual things like, I think How to Golf was before this and How to how to horseback ride or something like that. But um, several 40s how-tos uh, come into play. So this is how to play baseball. And they are almost always wonderful. Yeah, I, I really like Goofy. So I think if you if you like Goofy, um, then it's hard not to like uh, his shorts. Um, I guess if Goofy's not your style, then, then it would be hard to like these shorts. He's kind of... There is a, there is a Goofy style which is the the bumbling, do-it-his-own-way, um, always kind of surprised by what he achieves. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of the humor from the how-to shorts comes from the contrast between this pompous, know-it-all narrator and the ridiculous things that are happening on the screen. So the narrator, the narrator will say something is very easy, and uh, and then Goofy will completely screw it up in a hilarious visual way. Yeah, and so, so um, that's that's a lot of the gags. Uh, I think I have a couple written down. Uh, so at the very end, right, he says the narrator says that the umpire's word is law, and right after that, all the all the players converge on the umpire and start screaming at him, and the narrator immediately changes course and he says, "I wrote this down because I think it's hysterical." Free speech. That great American privilege is thoroughly enjoyed by players and spectators alike. That's why the national sport will always be that good old American game, baseball. <laughs> so the, the narrator is continually undercut by the things that are actually happening in the short, and uh, that's funny to me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's really funny. This one I feel like starts a little slow, but it, it definitely picks up. Like it it uh by the end it's it's really funny. Much funnier than a similar short that we talked about a few months ago, Casey at the Bat. Oh yes, definitely much much funnier than Casey at the Bat. Um, and I think part of what makes it funny is, I mean, Casey at the Bat is more of a legitimate baseball game, whereas this is just, I mean, it 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 starts as baseball, but it quickly veers away into just something only that only Goofy could be in, right? Yes, and to me, the the uh... The kind of classic gag in how to play baseball is you have the three players running to catch a pop fly. They run into each other, and then the ball uh, falls on the on their feet. Uh, and and to to me, that's that's just a classic, maybe the classic goofy gag. Yeah, they're like sprawled out and 
but with their feet towards each other instead of the ball is at their feet. Uh, the other one that I think is just great, and again, it comes near the end of the short, but it's um, when uh, the guy hits the ball right out of the skin, and so then it's unraveling. <laughs> the, the, the outfielder is there to catch it, and it's just one thread that comes down into his glove. And then and then he's sitting there, and he's trying to wind it back into a ball, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. Um, he ends up being come, completely tangled in it, and then he tries to throw it to home and, you know, yeah, just <laughs> the whole thing. That that whole sequence is just wonderful. Yeah, I, I have that. I have that written down too. The, um, and and Goofy's a little like Pluto in that he's very long and has a kind of ridiculous body, and so they can they can do these visual gags with him much more easily than they could with someone like Donald, who is much less funny if you don't have Clarence Nash or the equivalent doing his voice. Goofy Goofy's really good at this physical humor, and I mean, what happened is they lost Pinto Colvig. They lost the guy who who did Goofy's voice, and so rather than replacing him, they made this really brilliant move where they did this series of how-to shorts where the only voice is the narrator's voice. And so Goofy ends up not having to talk to be funny, and he's funnier because he doesn't talk, although it also makes it much more difficult for us to talk about on the show. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, because it really is entirely visual, and so in our um, entirely audible sort of format it doesn't really translate um but it is very funny you should just you know pause pause now and go watch it if you haven't watched it because it's, it's really it's really good just watch all the uh all the goofy shorts they're all wonderful i um when i bought those Walt disney treasures the the goofy one i bought them all used because it was past the time when they were released i think they're like 25 bucks when they first came out but when you buy them used some of them are five dollars and some of them are a hundred dollars, and the Goofy one was a hundred dollars. And I thought, do I want to spend a hundred dollars on two discs of Goofy shorts? And uh, I eventually decided I had to, because I, I just yeah. I felt like I had to own all the how-to shorts. Right, and I think they're the ones that Disney most cares about still. Um, I mean, as I said from um, earlier, like of the seven that we're talking about, the only one that's available digitally right now is the how-to shorts. So people, people care about them and people want, people are willing to pay for them, obviously. And they and made Disney, a new one uh, early in this century, right? How to, yeah, set, how to set up, up your, your home, home stereo. stereo. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny. It's, I mean, it's very much in the, the spirit of these original shorts. Yeah. That was kind of in the, that peak, uh, John Laster era where he was bringing back, you know, all the, all the classic Disney, Disney things. Like, I mean, Steamboat Willie pops up at the beginning of every film starting in that era. I mean, they really start paying attention to their history a little bit at that point. In Disney's. They do that really bizarre, wonderful Mickey Mouse short that aired in front of Frozen. What's it called? Ride, ride a horse, get a horse. Oh uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. The, yeah. The, that's the, the kind of time traveling, fourth wall breaking mickey mouse short yeah yeah one one uh won the award that year i think for for animated short it's really yeah as you said very interesting maybe we'll have to talk about that when we get to the <laughs> maybe that one and the and the goofy one <laughs> when we get into the into the middle 2000s here yeah when when we're 65 years old that's right. <laughs> and instead of listening on your phone, it just beams directly into the uh, pleasure center of your brain. <laughs> yeah. So the the beginning of the short, as I said, uh, it starts a little slower, but I did like the 
the gag where they're they've got the overhead view of the field and um there's you know as you said like the the narrator is saying it's a simple game but the the players are moving all over the place the dash lines it was very um i i think wes anderson rips this off in almost every single one of his movies oh that's interesting huh yeah he always has some sort of elaborate uh plan or something that that happens where you get kind of that overhead shot and it's, it's way more complicated than can be explained yeah he uh he says it's simple you only have nine people to watch <laughs> it's funny you know now because i think if they made the short now the joke about baseball now is not that it's overly complicated it's that it's overly boring that's right yeah so i think you could make an entirely different how to play baseball short where everybody's just kind of standing around although that wouldn't work very well with goofy who really needs to be contorted to be uh to be funny yeah so the contortions come out great because of the you know, they, they really play up the, the pitcher's wind-up and, um, yeah, sli- like sliding into base. Uh, he slides underground. Multiple, uh, I think just once he slides underground and then his hand pops up and he's, like, feeling around for the base to be safe. And, yeah, so there's there's a lot of good stuff there. I enjoyed the one where the pitcher was so upset about the, the batter that he accidentally chews into his ball instead of the chaw of tobacco that he has. Yeah. Very uh, Ichabod Crane. That's true, yeah, yeah, that's right. Or rather, Ichabod Crane is very this, because this predates both that and uh, Casey at the Bat. Maybe they used all their good baseball gags for how to play baseball, and they didn't have anything left for Casey at the Bat. Maybe so. Yeah, maybe that's the problem. This short was originally accompanied uh, the Pride of the Yankees, by the way. it was they, they rushed it so that it could go to theaters with the Pride of the Yankees. I know... Uh, what is, I don't know the Pride of the Yankees. It's the Lou Gehrig, I believe, biopic. I think it's Lou Gehrig. It's okay. it's a it's one of the most famous baseball movies, but I haven't seen it. I'm looking it up. Okay, it's a Disney movie. No, it's oh, okay. a it's a Sam Goldwyn. It says uh, RKO. Oh well, R- oh, RK, RKO distributes both both this and um, and uh, Pride of the Yankees. Right. RKO so yeah, it is Lou Gehrig. Yeah, RKO was the Disney distributor for a long time. So, and I I have always wanted to know. I know the information's out there, and I just haven't bothered to look at it. How these shorts worked? Because my understanding with them was they didn't accompany. Often they didn't accompany particular movies. They went to particular theater branches. So you would have, you know, if you had a theater in your town, it might show just Warner Brothers shorts, or it might show just Disney shorts. But I don't know that that's true. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, I do know that both uh, uh, Roosevelt and uh, Henry V demanded that they always see Disney shorts whenever they went to the, the theaters or uh, whenever they had movies shown in their presence or whatever. That's something that I learned in our, our research for this week. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. They really liked Mickey Mouse, I think. So I think they always wanted Mickey Mouse with with whatever they watch. It's it's Mickey's enduring popularity is so weird to me. We've talked about this several times, but to me he's just such a boring character after the mid thirties. His job is just basically to react to other funny people. Yeah, but he's become an icon, you know. Like it's not it doesn't even matter about who he is as much as it's just the I don't know, he symbolizes something. I don't know what exactly he symbolizes, but 
maybe that's the thing. It's... When, when you when you go to Disney World, kids line up around the block to meet Mickey, and I always wonder, like, how are they aware of him? What what are they watching him in? It's not. I don't know anywhere that rebroadcasts the old shorts. Like like, who do they think Mickey Mouse is? Yeah, well, there's that Mickey Mouse Clubhouse show on, uh, or there was at least. On my, my wife just whispered that across the room. Yeah. So, so I, great I've, minds think alike. I guess you're you, you would be the person to ask, huh? Because you have kids. Well, I've never shown my kids those because they. I've never watched one. Um, I've seen like pieces of them, and they they don't look like what I want to show. Like, I mean, you're, just you're one of the good ones, Josh. You show them the old <laughs> ones. Well, that's what I do, right? So, like, that's how my kids know Mickey. Like, they watch the band concert and Alpine Climbers. But um, actually, so there's a there's a new set of Disney um, animated shorts that I think are are quite good. I really enjoy them, um, and they're 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 drawn in the 2D style, and and they're they are shorts. Um, that's not the Mickey Clubhouse. So last t- last time we were at Disney World, we. Um... They have a channel that just shows shorts, and for whatever reason, they were showing these Mickey Mouse shorts from the 90s where Mickey Mouse was, like, attitudinal and alternative. It was terrible. It was It's the Eisner era. It's the same era that produces that Mickey Mouse rap album that everybody who's ever heard of should, heard of it should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> but you can you can find that on, on YouTube, I'm sure. But like, I don't know where these shorts came from, but they were... They, they were really horrible, and it was it was from adapting him to the '90s. So I, I say I don't like Mickey because he's boring, but attempts to make him interesting are even worse. Yeah, I mean maybe maybe his ideal thing, and I, I, we're talking about this in a goofy short instead of the two uh, combination shorts. But maybe his ideal situation is to be matched with Donald and Goofy, and then he can kind of react to their two brands of craziness. Yeah, I think that's right, and. Yeah, I mean, like I mean, we mentioned before when we when we did Mickey and the Beanstalk, you know, it's not really a Mickey short, but he's the hero, and you know, Do- Donald and Goofy get all the funniest parts, um, but Mickey gets to be the hero. I think it's kind of similar with uh, like Mickey's Christmas Carol was the other one that I watched a lot as a kid. Um, you know, Mickey gets to be Bob Cratchit. Everybody else gets to be funny. <laughs> right. Right. Mickey doesn't appear in How to Play Baseball, though. <laughs> yeah, why, I don't know how we got back onto Mickey, but he's unavoidable, I guess. Oh, the other gag I wanted to mention was that uh, when he's going through the the narrator's going through the uniform, and he says the socks are what the team is named after, which I thought was great. Yeah, and it's the blue socks <laughs> and the gray socks. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good joke. Several good jokes in there. So we began um, we began with a children's fable turned into a cartoon, and we're going to end with one too. Chicken Little, uh, which this is from December seventeenth, nineteen forty three. Importantly, the United States had been at war now for two years. Uh, the Chicken Little story is probably familiar to all our listeners. Uh, chi- an acorn falls on Chicken Little's head, and he believes that the sky is falling. He causes a panic in the farmyard and. Uh, gets everybody into trouble with a fox who either eats them or nearly eats them or eats some of them, depending on the version of the story you've read. This uh, takes a few liberties with that story and updates it for 1943, but largely, like the Three Little Pigs, largely hues to the outlines of the story. 
Uh, I, I first saw this about 10 years ago, and I thought it was so bizarre that when we decided to do the shorts episode, I knew we had to talk about it. Had you ever heard of it? I don't think I had. I don't. I mean, I know I knew the Chicken Little story, but I don't. I don't think I'd seen uh, or heard that Disney had done one. What did you think of it? I li- I liked it, and um, it's it it is bizarre, as you said. Um, it's definitely uh, well. So I I watched it on YouTube because that was where I could find it, and so it is introduced before you watch it as um, a this is a Nazi, anti-Nazi propagate, propaganda piece. And so I knew going in what I was getting. Like, I, I don't know what I would have got, you know, if it was, if I'd gone in cold and, and just watched it. Um, but yeah, it was, it's definitely, you know, with, it's just, it's interesting watching it now, like in our, in our current time, right? Because it, people have been drawing parallels to you know rising nationalism around the world not only in america but um these sorts of things like why is this stuff coming back now um why is it why is it rising around the world and so it was interesting to watch it i think in our context knowing also the context of world war ii that was originally created in yeah and 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 the kind of so so the fox is the one who sets all this in motion and he he reads from a book that just says psychology on it and yeah, I thought it was great. I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. No, but no, that's I, fine. I really funny that like psychology is like almost seen as an evil in itself, right? Like, well, the, um, the truth is this, Josh, that that um, a lot of the Nazi propagandists and American propagandists, for that for that matter, studied psychology and used used principles from psychology. So it, it's not it's not quite as funny as it seems. It seems funniest to us now because we think of psychology as it's an unmitigated good thing in some ways. But right. um, I, I think a lot of psychologists were horrified at the use uh, at the at the use their work was put to. I have a quote here from a guy named Ty Stump. I don't know who he is, but I found him online. At the time, German and American propagandists were both heavily influenced by advertisers and public relations experts, many of whom had backgrounds in psychology. The most famous public relations expert of the time, Edward Bernays, was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud and knew how to use theories of psychology to get practical results. Bernays later learned that Joseph Goebbels, the minister of Nazi propaganda, was using his ideas to strengthen the Third Reich. So, so psychology really was in some ways a, a, a threat. And so the book The Fox Reads has all these, I don't know what kind of psychology book, just has like tips for taking over feeble-minded people. But the, the tips that he reads out loud uh, do seem socially relevant still. Undermine the faith of the masses and their leaders. By the use of flattery, insignificant people can be made to look upon themselves as born leaders. I mean, that's Twitter, right? To influence the masses, aim first at the least intelligent. Uh, I mean, these are these are principles that we see unscrupulous people using even today. If you yeah. tell them a lie, don't tell a little one. Tell a big one. Yeah, it's it's really it's stunning. Um, <laughs> I guess that's all I have to say. Yeah, what can I say besides it's stunning? I guess what I meant when I said it was funny, I do want to come back to this. I don't want to get too sidetracked. Charles Hackney did a who of the um our what our brethren show over there, uh, nature. Um, the book of nature. Called? The book of nature. Yeah, I really enjoyed their show. Um, but he did a Christian profiles, Christian humanist profiles episode. Uh, 
and they had discussed this that um, I can't remember who who it was that he was interviewing, but they were talking about how when this guy was coming up in in the 80s, um, that in in Christian circles psychology was still viewed as this evil, you know, and you like they were you can't be a Christian and a psychologist basically um, was what they were talking about in that interview. I don't it's, know that's, it it's funny to think of that that was the case, isn't it? Because I I don't remember what Crown was like, but half of the humanities and social sciences majors at Crown are are uh, are, are psychology majors. Right. So I guess, but it makes sense going back to, because I do want to get back to, to what you were just saying about how unscrupulous people are still using these ideas now. Um, I, I think it makes sense that an idea from the 40s of, you know, Nazis use this stuff in order to strengthen the Third Reich would still be lingering in evangelicalism in the 80s, right? Like that makes sense. I wonder if that's where it comes from or whether it comes from an evangelical desire to see all problems as spiritual problems. Do you know what yeah, I mean? And that, yes, absolutely I do. Um, yeah. Uh, which I think, yeah, there's there's an interesting overlap there too with, um, you know, trying to understand how our, our brains work or how, you know, how psychology works, how, you know, just how people think. Um, and, and where does it come from? You know, like it's, it's that you get into that area of like, well, where, you know, where is the image of God in us, you know, or where is, uh, you know, where is our fallenness? Where is our, you know, um, would we all be perfectly chemically balanced, (laughs) you know, if, if we weren't fallen, you know, like, or not, like, I don't know, like it's, it's that sort of thing where, it's it's just it's impossible I think to know. Yeah. And so you can make it spiritual, but at the same time, there's like, well, the spiritual affects your physical, also, right? Right, and I think that's how I think that's how people tend to see it today. But I, I think as as you say, in the eighties, uh, evangelicalism was in a different cultural place than it is now, and and people weren't ready for that. And some people still aren't, I should say. Right. And yeah. And so, yeah, I'm a product of my time as much as, as, um, you know, people who are my age in the eighties were a product of theirs. So, um, yeah, it's difficult not to be right. I mean, that goes all the way back to the beginning. Like when you're talking about, um, some of Disney's views and his insensitivity of things, right? Like it's, it's hard not to be a person of your time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you, you just hope, uh, you hope the future is more forgiving than we are. Yeah. So two other things that interest me about this short. Um, Number one, there is an actual threat. Uh, So so part of the part of the point when you call someone a chicken little, you accuse them of panicking about something that's not a threat. But there is a threat here, and it's just not the threat that everybody thinks it is. And in that sense, it reminds me of. Have you ever seen that Twilight short, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street? Uh, if you tell me the plot, I may have. I don't know Twilight's titles. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to spoil this episode for anybody who's listening. So if you don't want it spoiled, it's one of the most famous episodes. You probably know the twist already. It's a kind of uh, cheerful suburban town in the 1950s. And all of a sudden, the power goes out. The power goes out all over the street. 
uh, and uh, the cars stop working, the wireless radio stop working, telephones stop working, everything stops working. So everybody gathers outside, as I guess you would, and they start talking, and a little boy tells them that it's the aliens, and he shows them a comic book where this is how the aliens uh, take over in new places. They, they turn off all the power. And they make fun of him at first, and then they start getting more and more paranoid, right? Um, until finally, one of them gets shot by another one. And, and I mean, things uh, escalate into an all-out riot. And, and you think, the, twi- you think the, the message here is, you know, don't, don't panic about communism. It's clearly, a, it's clearly an anti-Red Scare plot. Except at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the episode... Uh, the camera pans up to a mountain above the town, and two, I think, I think they're supposed to be Soviets, are talking about how easy it is to undermine American culture. All you have to do is turn off the power and they'll turn on each other. So there is a real threat, it's just not the threat they think it is. And likewise in Chicken Little, there's a real threat. The threat just comes from outside, and the threat is not your leaders. And that, that's, that's the second thing that interests me here. The ultimate message of Chicken Little, the short, is uh, listen to the people in authority and everything will be okay. Yeah, I was noticing that. Um, because that's the first one, right? Is undermine undermine their faith in the authority. I think it's the second one. The, the first oh, one is if you're going to tell a lie, tell a big one. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. So, But that second one of, of undermining the authority, that could play really wrong especially like in our current era, right? Like with, with Donald Trump spouting everything that's against him as fake news, right? Right. So if you use it in the, I think most people who of our bent who are going to watch this would see, you know, Donald Trump more as being in that Fox position. But if, if he got a hold of this, like he would be saying, well, look, I'm, I'm cocky locky. And it's all the, it's the mainstream media that's making you think that there's this other problem out there. And, you know, they're, they're undermining your faith and your authorities. Or I don't so, even think you have to go that far. How does, this, how does this short read in Nazi Germany? I mean, presumably they never would have seen it. But, I mean, what makes us think Hitler is the fox instead of, instead of being cocky-locky? So yeah. it, it seems to me that faith and authority is only as good as the authority is. And I don't know that I'd trust Cocky Lucky either, being that he is a stereotypical, you know, backdoor businessman, backroom businessman. Excuse me, I don't know what a backdoor businessman would be. A yeah. backroom businessman. He 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 doesn't strike me as terribly trustworthy either. But the the point of the short here is Chicken Little. I think that the term he uses is Chicken Little's a good egg as far as chickens go. So it's not that he's a bad person. The problem is he oversteps where he should be in society. He doesn't respect the social hierarchy. But in 2018, we are disinclined to believe in any kind of social hierarchies uh, and, and see it as all a big power struggle. There are no cocky lockies. There's only multiple foxes. Terrifying. <laughs> But I don't have an yeah. answer for that. Like, I, it's not like I. It's not like I trust the the authorities in charge of the American government. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't have an answer for that either. It's, okay. That is very. It's very interesting um, to think about. So, how would you? How would you even create a propaganda piece of this type today? You know. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it's a it's a it's a short that is supposed to be fostering social cohesion, right? But it relies on there being social cohesion to begin with, and I'm not sure we have social cohesion anymore in any meaningful sense. Yeah. I yeah. mean, one one thing so, that's interesting about it is it's an anti-propaganda propaganda film, right? Because the fox right. is, a spe- is essentially spreading propaganda, but who's to say that the short's not spreading <laughs> propaganda? Right, which is the problem with you know using your using your enemy's tactics, I guess, right? Um, well, and as I said before, like they're getting it from American advertising. So we're we're back to cocky Locky as being this businessman. I mean, who right. taught who taught the fox how to do this? Yeah, who wrote the psychology book? That's right. It's a, it's a fascinating short, right? And and like I don't think anybody watching it for the first time expects the fox to win. Expects the last shot to be a graveyard of wishbones. Yeah, it's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really dark because it doesn't offer any sort of solution. Done. Yeah. And nobody I mean, survives, watch- I guess. Yeah. And so, I mean, but it's like you're saying like if you if you think about the message of okay, so don't allow the propaganda to undermine your faith and authority or the there's a big lie out there, I guess. But what is the big lie? You know, how do you how do you figure out what the big lie is? Depends on you all already knowing and agreeing what the big lie is, which I mean, I guess in the 40s, most Americans would have. Right. I mean, the, the vast majority of Americans were not fascist. There were some there were American Nazis. But for the most part, everybody watching the short would agree that Hitler was evil. Right. So if you have a shared enemy already, it like kind of confirms your confirms your biases in a way. Yeah, it's a it's a very disturbing short and kind of a funny one to end on since it, it ends on such a dark note. Yeah. Well, it's it's really dark because the narrator uh, I mean going back to the goofy short where the narrator gets undercut only in this way in this one it's not in any sort of funny way, but as as the, all the chickens are running into the cave, which is where the the fox wants them to go because that's his trap, um the narrator says, don't worry, folks, this all turns out okay. And then the next scene is that you see the fox um, licking the you know last vestiges of chicken off of a wishbone and planting the wishbone in the wishbone graveyard. Yeah, so, yeah, the narrator's undercut. So, I mean, and, and going back to the idea of authority, like when you're, when you're watching a short, you expect the narrator to be an authority in, in a certain sense, right? Right. And, and I mean, I, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but Every voice in this is done by the same guy. So you want to talk about not knowing who to trust. Cocky Locky and the Fox are the same person. <laughs> Everything but the quacking ducks, by the way. The quacking ducks are done by uh, Clarence Nash, who's the voice I of was going to say, yeah, I was going to say it sounds very Donald Duckish. No one quacks like Nash. That's right. But, yeah, this... Uh, this short is interesting to me because number one, it's so incredibly dark for a Disney short, and number two, I'm I'm not sure it really bears scrutiny, even though I think it's really a, a excellent cartoon. I think it's funny and well done, well animated, but I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure it really I'm not sure it really works for us in our cultural environment now. Right. Be nice if it did. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, 
yeah, in the in the sense of you want something to to motivate people, right? But is is propaganda the right way to go? I don't know. And and you know, so it's interesting the context also, you know, we talked about this a little bit when we were doing um Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros, but uh there you know, there was actually a, a wing of the government that was wanting uh, Disney to be making these pieces, and so they're the ones who are pressuring him to make these propaganda pieces. Disney was really, especially at this time, in the in the 40s, was very interested in art, you know, and and being an artist, and so uh, he was hesitant to make these these propaganda pieces. So I wonder if that's part of why it's also not maybe as effective as he wasn't fully in. Hmm. How many other of the propaganda pictures have you seen? Um, so there's, there's one called, uh, what it's something about emotions and and reason. Is that what it's called? I don't think I've seen that one. Okay. It's very, uh, it's like a precursor to inside out. So you've got a couple of little guys inside everybody's head. One is reasonable and one is very emotional. And the, basically the, the thrust of the piece is that the, the Germans, um, the Nazis have been, have allowed the emotional part of their brain to take over and so to stay rational. And so I've seen that one. It's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, and then, uh, I've seen, so on the other side, they, they did, uh, they did one where they're trying to convince people to pay their taxes. So to fund the war effort. And that's a Donald Duck short. And I've seen that one. There's another one where Goofy is trying to preserve rubber. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Uh huh. Yeah, it's it's all about like building cars that don't use rubber tires, I think. And then mm-hmm. I think probably the most famous one is called Der Führer's Face, where Donald. Oh yeah, Trump... I've seen that one too. Yeah. 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 I, I thought about doing that one because I figured we needed to do one of the World War II shorts. But I'm I'm so fascinated by Chicken Little. Plus, we we have so much Donald Duck in this episode anyway. Yeah. Well, Chicken Little, I think, did give us the much richer conversation. But Der Führer's Face, if you haven't seen it, it it's again going back to. Uh, the catchy songs, the the Deferrer's Face song is really catchy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a funny short. I mean, funny in a way. Well, this one's pretty funny, I suppose. Yeah. And the clucking hens and the the dumb turkey intellectuals. Yeah, the setup is is very funny. Um, once it once it actually gets into the the heart of the piece, it, it gets it gets less funny and more dark. Well, uh, what are we doing next month? All right. Well, next month we'll be back and we'll be entering the silver era of the Disney animated canon with Cinderella. So we're looking forward to that. Um, and yeah, we hope that you join us for that. Um, Michael and I know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for choosing us. Uh, we also want you to know that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You can find all our past shows and many other shows on the network at christianhumanist.org. Um, if you love show notes, then you can point your browser over to beforetheywere.live. Um, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We leave you with this thought from Disney. If people would think more of fairies, they would soon forget the atom bomb.